Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is ValueSide. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. Well, today, do we need the Federal Reserve? Well, December 23, 2023, will mark the 110th anniversary of the Federal Reserve Board, created before credit cards, before electronic fund transfers, before instant communications and the Internet, and indeed before computers, the question arises, do we still need this anachronistic central bank? Other financial institutions have exhibited remarkable change as they have adopted to the new technologies and methods of operation. But today, the Fed continues to operate as it has for over a century, attempting to predict future economic trends by setting interest rates, promoting full employment, that's the dual mandate, and supervising the nation's significant banks. Most remarkably is how incredibly costly the Fed is, raking in the interest income from a $7 trillion portfolio of U.S. securities. Today, we examine the history of the Fed and ask whether its benefits outweigh its tremendous costs. Now, Perhaps you're like me, and you have two credit cards in my wallet, debit and credit cards. I use the debit cards when I'm being conservative. After all, when I use debit cards, I'm limited to the amount that I have in my checking account. Debit cards are stodgy and old-fashioned. They force me to stay on my budget and not to overspend. The credit card, however, is just the opposite. When I see something I like, I can buy it. It doesn't matter how much cash I have on hand. There is usually a credit card limit, but it's far and away beyond how much I have in the bank. It's a heady feeling to have a credit card, especially when it's a gold, platinum, or heaven forbid, diamond credit card. As any business traveler will tell you, there is more than a bit of satisfaction when you pull out one of these elite cards. People comment, when an exceptionally high echelon card comes out of the wallet. More often than not, those corporate cards are designed to aid in travel and entertainment. But as we quickly learn, the bill for credit cards comes due at the end of every month. And unlike debit cards, there's an interest charge for all that money you're borrowing. We're seeing credit card charges return to the levels last seen back in the 1980s. Current credit card interest is somewhere between 18 and 28 percent. Those interest charges add up very quickly. However, the decision to use a credit or a debit card is mine. I decide whether I want to purchase on credit or buy with cash. Of course, any financial advisor or planner worth their salt will tell you buy on cash. Use credit sparingly. It's way too expensive. I read once that the average item purchased on credit costs twice as much after interest as a cash purchase. Buying on a cash basis is always, without exception, the prudent move financially. Unfortunately, 110 years ago, six men, meeting in total isolation, decided that we would run on credit for this country from that point forward. A cash-based economy was not even considered for the nation. Now, they met on Jekyll Island, one of the barrier islands off the coast of Georgia. For visitors and guests, Jekyll Island is one of the few connected to the mainland via a causeway. Thus, the six could drive down to their destination. 
but these were no ordinary citizens. Included in the group was Nelson A. Aldridge, considered at the time one of the four most powerful U.S. senators in the country and who were the real power behind the throne in American politics. Coincidentally, his connections did not stop in Washington. His daughter was also the wife of John D. Rockefeller. It was a group dominated by commercial bankers. The first on the list was Frank A. Vanderlip, president of National Citibank of New York. Now you know it as Citibank. Next, from the academic community came Abraham Piet Andrew. A former Harvard economics professor, Andrew had spent three years earlier in the National Monetary Commission, whose task was to reform the banking industry. Next came Paul Warburg, the only group member from Wall Street. Warburg was an investment banker, someone who dealt with stocks and bonds. And remember, the separation of investment banking and commercial banking did not occur until the passage of Glass-Steagall Act in 1933, 20 years after these men were creating the Federal Reserve. Now, Warburg's family was originally from Germany and had several prominent banking members over there. So Warburg brought a particular European perspective on the creation of the Federal Reserve. Next on the list was Henry Pomeroy Davidson. Davidson had a distinguished career in the banking industry, having been president of Liberty National Bank, a founding member of Bankers Trust, and a senior partner at J.P. Morgan & Company. Finally, the other Bankers Trust alum to join the group was Benjamin Strong, Strong was a vice president at Bankers Trust during the 1907 financial panic. He held a critical position in coordinating with J.P. Morgan himself and saw to the protection of the member bank reserves and provided the liquidity to member banks. Strong was the nuts and bolts, the operations man of the group. Now, it's easy to see how the idea for the Federal Reserve grew out of the panic of 1907, also known as the 1907 Banker's Panic. Beginning in September of 1906, America's financial system began to go off the rails. The country fell into an economic recession. New York City tried to sell bonds but couldn't find enough investors. The stock market crashed, eventually losing half its value, and several banks failed with depositors left empty-handed. To the American public, This was a failure of the banks themselves. Americans blamed bankers for the trouble they were in. The public has never really understood the risk of a fractional reserve banking system. On the other hand, the American political elite saw this as an opportunity to bring much-needed reform, quote-unquote, to the American system. Within two years of the crisis, Senator Aldridge was busy preparing his answer, creating an American central bank, a bank that could save any member bank from failing. In 1911, two years before they met on Jekyll Island, Ulrich floated his ideas before his fellow senators, who promptly ran as fast as they could in the other direction. The senators knew that the last thing their constituents wanted was more bankers. As we said... To the American public, bankers, they were the problem, not the solution. And while many may have lost confidence in their local banks, that was doubly the case for a central bank. 
As a country, we had twice tried a central bank, but each time it failed. The last time was in 1837, when Andrew Jackson, president, declared the Second Bank of the United States to be unconstitutional, a sentiment most of his countrymen shared for the next 76 years. That's why the Federal Reserve Project had to be held in a remote Georgia island in complete secrecy. Imagine the headlines if it were revealed that three bankers, an economics professor, a U.S. senator, and a German stockbroker, remember this was only a year before the beginning of World War I, and a German stockbroker were creating an American central bank. The outcry would have been tremendous. Now at that point, Senator Aldridge played one of the most adept political sleight of hands ever. Knowing the public's aversion to the concept of a central bank, the term is never mentioned in his proposal for the Federal Reserve. Instead, this new entity was called the Federal Reserve Board. Reserve, because it was portrayed as just like the Banker's Trust. Hat tip to Benjamin Strong. Banker's Trust's primary business was to hold bank reserves, which are the assets used to bail out any troubled bank. Today, America may be the only country with a central bank that's not called a central bank. No matter what they named this institution, the U.S. Federal Reserve Board remains the most influential central banker of them all. The Fed sets short-term interest rates and, by congressional mandate, promotes full employment and stable prices. Now, fundamental to all this is that it is a debt-based banking system, one in which it is the Fed, not the Treasury, that issues our currency. It is accomplished by legal deception, in which the Fed loans the United States the debt instruments, those are U.S. Treasury bonds, notes, and agencies, the Fed uses as ledger items to offset all currency and credits issued. Remember those stimulus checks used to support the country after the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, with authorization from the U.S. Treasury, the Fed issued $5 trillion new dollars. However, it's incorrect to say that these were created out of thin air. Yes, these dollars began as mere ledger entries on the world's most giant balance sheet. That's released by the Fed every Thursday afternoon. But behind every dollar issue was an IOU created by our government. They were putting U.S. taxpayers in debt that would eventually need to be paid off. The form of these IOUs were those U.S. Treasury securities we just spoke about. All are legal, all are binding, and all are an obligation of the citizens of this country. Individual investors, like you or me or corporations or governments, may purchase any of those bonds, notes, or agencies, and each one of those is paid interest. But lately, we've been asking for so much cash that the Fed has had to step in and purchase those securities. In May of last year, the Fed completed its purchase of a whopping $9 trillion of U.S. securities. Currently, they own about $7.8 trillion. And guess what? The Fed also receives the interest on those holdings. What's the interest on $9 trillion? Well, I'm not sure, but a rough estimate is that at 5.25%, the current Fed funds rate, it would be nearly half a trillion dollars in interest 
income going to the Federal Reserve. Now, under Presidents Trump and Biden, the federal government's budget, for the first time, reported a trillion-dollar deficit. That is, the government is spending more than a trillion dollars over what it collects in taxes and other revenue. That's not sustainable. Excessive spending requires the issue of massive amounts of debt. The problem arises when the government can only sell some of those newly created notes and bonds. Someone must purchase the balance to keep the government operating. Generally, the national government buys back its own securities. That's called monetizing the debt. It's an activity that only poorly managed banana republics used to do, not the United States. But we cleverly have the Federal Reserve. It can purchase all those unsold bonds and notes. We obscure that we, too, are monetizing our debt. It's another way American politicians use the Fed to hide their poor financial management. Now, at this point, you can see that our entire monetary system is beginning to unravel. When your potential interest liability to your own central banker is nearly $500 billion, something has gone wrong. If you or I were this far in debt with elevated credit card payments, we would immediately have to see a credit counselor. So imagine if U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen had to meet with a credit counselor. Let's see if we can clearly understand our country's current finances. Imagine that the United States Treasurer, Janet Yellen, met with a credit counselor. What are the sorts of questions that counselor might ask? What issues would the credit counselor raise in everyday language? So let's see what the credit counselor would ask. First question by the credit counselor. What made you finance your country with credit cards, debt-based financing? Answer from the treasurer. Well, six guys, five bankers and a politician advised us to do it back in 1913. (laughs) Credit counselor. Let me get this straight. You last reviewed your financial plan 110 years ago. You never updated it never brought it into the 20th, much less the 21st century. And in 1913, did they have computers, the internet, spreadsheet, or cryptocurrencies? Treasurer, no. I didn't think so, said the credit counselor. So, did you take the advice from Fed bankers, the same people who profit from your credit? Isn't that a conflict of interest? Who benefits from your interest in those notes, bonds, and agency? Isn't it the same Fed bankers? Treasurer. Well, yes, that's right. The same Fed bankers. Counselor. And who sets the interest rate on your debt-based financing? Treasurer. Well, it's the same Fed bankers. This year, we project the Fed will double its income just because the Fed bankers said we needed higher interest rates. Counselor. And who owns all that currency? treasurer. Well, the Fed bankers do. After all, it does say Federal Reserve note on all our dollars. Counselor, not the U.S. dollar? How's that? Counselor, and what did the federal banker do to collateralize those dollars? Treasurer, oh yes. Well, we signed an agreement 110 years ago, so we must be still bound by it, I suppose. Counselor, so let me get this straight. 
You issue currency based on the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, but the Fed bankers receive much of the interest on your debt, and the Fed bankers have little or no liability. Treasurer, well, I know. Counselor, finally, Miss U.S. Treasurer, you do realize that you are being charged interest on the interest you fail to pay each year. Interest charges are compounding against you. This is usury, and unless you get out of this abusive banking relationship, you might fail. Treasurer, I know. Epilogue, The Bank-Free Era As a country, we have passed the critical debt level that all credit counselors recognize. We need more income to meet our obligations. For years, we've overspent with little regard for the consequences. Today, those consequences have become so massive that they must be addressed by us. It's time we ask whether we want to continue operating under this debt-based central bank system. After all, the United States operated from 1837 until 1913 without a central bank. Historians called this the bank-free era, and by all accounts it was a time of tremendous industrial progress and wealth creation. Those 76 years were the most prosperous in the nation's history. Great cities arose. The Transcontinental Railroad was built. Factories sprung up around the country and people found employment. The middle class emerged. Operating all this time without a central bank allowed America to allocate its financial assets in an almost perfect free market environment. Unfortunately, these power-hungry politicians and bankers leveraged a three-month bank panic into their overwrought reform and thereby created the Federal Reserve. They promised that there would never again be a panic like 1907, a promise that was shown to be hollow when just 22 years later, in 1929, a far worse panic, the Great Depression, would, under the leadership of the Federal Reserve, last for more than a decade and cost infinitely more than the 1907 bankers' panic. As a country, we had given away our economic freedom, for the promise of safety and security, a promise that proved worthless. Our challenge today is to create a vibrant, expanding economy, to do what generations past had done, create a land of opportunity where hard work and innovation are rewarded. Note the years of the free bank era. It was also the time of the great American Industrial Revolution, when America went from being a backwards country of local farmers to becoming the world's premier industrial and commercial nation. If you want to know how America became the world's superpower, look no further than the free bank era before the Federal Reserve even existed. And that's today's value side. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.